Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Uh, my name is Khan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach, and we're going to be in Psalm 56 here tonight. So that's on page 476 in the Pew Bible. So please grab a Pew Bible, open it up. Um, I'm really, really praying that tonight is going to bless you. We've been looking at this series called Victory, asking the question, what does it mean for Christians to live this life as conquerors? And in the passage that was just read for you, uh, the Bible described us as conquerors, not that we will be conquerors. So there is a way for Christians to live right now in this world victorious as conquerors. Last week, we looked at what it meant to have um, victory over shame. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at what it means to have victory over complacency. But tonight, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to look like, what does it mean to experience victory over worry? At the start of this year, on March 15th, uh, we had our second child. And because it was such a significant event, I thought I would bring photos for you. Um, The first time that we had a baby, it was real, real special, right? We went to the hospital, and I was actually one of those husbands that um, starts feeling the blood go from their head to their feet and feels like he's going down. And then so I had to reach for a Zupa Dupa and one of the nurses, like, embarrassed for me, went and got me a Zupa Dupa. So I could, you guys know what a Zupa Dupa is? It's, sugar, it's a sugary treat, a sugary ice block, right? And so I got all this sugar into me so that I could survive. Um, so I could survive the pregnancy. That's what I did. And I'm pleased to announce that I survived. March 15th rolls around this uh, year, and my wife, um, her water breaks, and at about three or four in the morning, we head into the hospital, and um, uh, we say, oh, we're we're about to have a baby, and they say to us, no, you're not, go home. So we um, head off home, and they say, come back in the afternoon. And then so we um, stop at our in-law's house, because we had renovations going on at our house, so we stopped at our in-law's very early in the morning, and we were told to go, we were told to go back in the afternoon. So my wife sends me to bed and she says, I'm just going to go and have a shower. And then so what happens is I go to bed and everything is calm when I went to bed. I was supposed to go to bed. I was told to go to bed. (laughs) And then I hear the polite scream of my wife. And um, my wife is politely screaming to come to her And then I run to her in the shower and she says, this thing is happening now. And then so in the space of about 10 minutes, I don't have time for the blood to rush from my head to my feet. I don't have time to grab a a super duper. In about 10 minutes time, right, this baby is coming out. I've got the baby's hand in my head. uh, Head in my hand. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. That's why you're here. And, um, And the phone in my other hand. And I don't, I'm speaking to the ambulance, I don't know the address, so I'm asking my wife for the address, right? She's telling me the address, and I told them, but they want me to repeat it. So I'm like, I bet, can you just repeat the address? Half a baby is out at this point, right? <laughs> the whole baby comes out, and um, we're holding this baby on the floor of uh, the bathroom of our in-law's house, and they didn't know that we had actually come. So they're downstairs having a cup of tea, and we are upstairs with a baby, right? <laughs> I'm screaming out for help, and they don't hear anything. And I don't know why I was screaming for help. I just wanted a mum to be around, because I felt like a mum should be around the place. If you've been involved in a pregnancy at all in any kind of way, 
you understand that worry will come to you. And we, what we know about worry is that worry can come to you in a way that you expect it and worry can come to you in a way that you least expect it. Like, I wonder if you've ever been worried about these three dots. If you can just put these next three dots up. <laughs> like, maybe you sent a message to someone, a messenger, right? Facebook messenger. And you've got, like, maybe a romantic interest in this person. And the three dots came up because it means that someone's writing. And then the three dots went away, but you didn't get a message. Ever been worried about that? Or maybe you were like in a fight with someone and you sent a message and you saw the three dots and then nothing came. It was full of worry. Or maybe you have this one. Maybe you've ever been to university and the assignment submission spot. Anyone feared the assignment submission spot before? Right? It's the question they ask you just before you submit an assignment. Do you really want to submit this assignment? Are you sure that you're sure that you're sure that you really want to submit this assignment? Maybe you have all this worry, this second-guessing about the assignment that you're going to submit. But it is true that we all experience worry in a bunch of different ways, and that some of us experience it through those ways and other people, through maybe health concerns or the what-ifs of the future, but worry seems to come to us all in different ways. So that tonight we're going to ask the question, how did God intend for us to live in a world where worry does not conquer us, but we're living victoriously in the midst of worry. Tonight, we're looking at victory over worry. Well, it has been reported that stress affects the mental health of up to 64 Australians and the physical health of 72% of Australians. 500 years ago, a bloke named Michael Montagna said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. And what he's explaining is that through life, we have all these things happen to us that we have worry over. And then we have all this perceived worry over these things that actually never, ever come about. And they did this study and found out that 85% of the things that we worry about are actually just perceived. That's not to play down that other 50% of things that we actually do have worry over, but it's to say that worry seems to come a lot, doesn't it? We seem to worry about a lot of things. So let's all ground ourselves on the, on the same page and have a shared definition of what we mean by worry. Worry is a distressed feeling that results when something you value comes under threat. So worry is a distressed feeling, a feeling of distress that results when something you value comes under threat. Uh, my, wife, my wife's health was coming under threat, so I felt distressed. Submitting an assignment that is perhaps poorly written 10 minutes before it's due and when it requires like a major grade can bring about distress on you. Or maybe being stuck in a Thailand cave for more than two weeks is going to bring distress on some people and their parents, right? Distress seems to come from all different angles. It seems to be normal, but we need to ask, is it normal for the Christian? Should Christians be experiencing this kind of distress? Are God's people exempt from distress? And if there is a kind of worry that is godly, then what is a kind of worry that is ungodly that should be avoided? So let's start with our first question. Are God's people exempt from experiencing the distress of life? And our investigation brings us into Psalm 56, where we'll be tonight. Last week, we learned that the book of Psalms is not just the random diary entries of a bunch of random people, but it is the book are praises with a purpose. 
that each psalm is actually a song written with a particular purpose, and that whole purpose has a unified purpose across all of the psalms, that each psalm has its own individual purpose, but as a book there are unified themes. And those unified themes come as a, come as a twofold. Purpose number one is that the book of Psalms was written to explain to us how the godly, how the blessed might live a godly and blessed life amongst the ungodly. Purpose number two is that there is one divine king in who we've been invited to take refuge in. And this purpose of the book of Psalms actually weaves its way really powerfully into Psalm 56. If you look at the top of Psalm 56, you might find the title, uh, In God I Trust. And if you keep reading, you'll see why trust was such an issue for our author. Let's read together. It says, To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinth, or according to the tune, you might read that, to the tune of the dove on far-off terebinth. This was a song. A miktam, a miktam, a kind of musical instrument of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, the situation that this psalm refers to is that when David, prior to beginning his role as a king, his um, predecessor, King Saul, did not like him very much. Um, king Saul had a lot of rage, a lot of anger towards uh, young David because David was getting this notoriety as this great warrior and Saul was gaining none of the attention. There was actually this song that all the Israelites used to sing in front of Saul and the, the line of the song went like this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. How's that as a song to sing in front of someone? I think Australians can kind of get Saul's anger because we get the thing, we get tall poppy syndrome, right? Tall poppy syndrome is that thing that when someone is doing really well, this new guy on the block, then we've just got this desire to cut him down or her down. That they might be showing great promise, doing things really well, when we want to come along and we want to knock them down a couple of pegs. Australians get that, but the Israelites didn't get that at all. The Israelites absolutely loved David. The problem for David, though, was that although the Israelites loved him, they would not protect him. So David had to run. So let's see his experience down in verse 1 and 2. He writes, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. David's experience is of a relentless attack that was never-ending, that never let up, that didn't give him a time to, to, to calm down and to have a break and, and to get energy to go back out. The attack that David was experiencing brought David great, great, great distress. And here is the first insight that we receive from God's Word in learning to respond to worry. Distress is a reality even in the life of God's people. Now, if you do a careful survey, a careful survey of the Bible, you will quickly realize that there is a kind of distress that is totally appropriate for God's people to feel. There is a kind of distress that is totally appropriate. The Christian message is not that when you become a Christian, you get to use faith as a magic vehicle to free you from pain. That is not the gospel. There is a kind of distress that Christians do experience. 
Even a blunt survey of the Bible teaches us that living a life of victory over, over worry is not the same as saying that the victorious life of the Christian is free of pain and suffering. You see, there are people that try to make millions off telling you that you can speak positive circumstances into your life. You might uh, know about these books that they write. You might have gone onto a flight at one point in time and you've gone to the magazine section in the, in the magazine shop and you've seen all these self-help books that make you want to vomit in your mouth. Right? Even as we've come to this series, this series on victory, right? as we talk about the victorious life of the Christian, I wonder how many of you just have this guard up against it. That you think that living a life as a Christian actually shouldn't be victorious. That Christians should walk around with this weight on their shoulders, reminding themselves that they're sinful and that they're repentant. And, and, and though we are those things, we feel like that needs to weigh us down and that needs to have a stranglehold on us. It is possible to feel the distress of life and to experience the victory of life at the same time. If David were to write a self-help book, he would call it this, Oh God, man tramples on me. That's what he would call it. That's the very, very first line of this psalm. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. If you survey the entire Bible, you see that there is a kind of distress experienced by God's leaders that is incredibly appropriate. Let me prove it to you. Listen to the words of King Jesus in Luke 12, verse 50. He writes, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So he's using baptism as a metaphor of going to the cross. Luke continues to write of the life of Jesus in Luke 22, verse 44. He writes, And being in agony, he prayed earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus looked upon the horror of the cross and what he was going to experience on the cross, and he didn't speak a positive experience into life. He understood that going to the cross was going to be horrific. He experienced great distress. Paul knew what it was like to experience great distress as well. He writes in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, speaking of uh, the, the churches that he's planted, he writes, and apart from the other things, the things that he wrote previously, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, right? So he has this distress that he's planted churches that are forgetting the gospel and it is causing him distress. So there seems to be a godly way to worry. We know that Jesus went to the cross without sin and he experienced distress. So that must teach us that there seems to be, through a survey of the Bible, a godly way to experience distress. But we all know that there seems to be a weight of worry that you can experience in your life that is like a weight around your neck, like a stranglehold around your neck. That when you think of worry, you think of sleepless nights, you think of isolation, you think of being abandoned, you think that the weight of the world is on your shoulders. So what is the difference between godly worry versus the worry that suffocates the victorious life of the Christian. I want to suggest to you that that answer is found in Psalm 56, along with much of Scripture, 
And it endorses a way to honour God and overcome the sting of worry. And that answer is revealed in verse 3 and verse 4. So look down in verse 3. He writes, when I'm afraid, this is his genuine experience, the, the oppression that he was experiencing was genuine, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, which is the antidote to worry, right? Which is the antidote to worry. To experience a freedom from worry, it is to put your trust in God. But how is it possible, we need to ask, how is it possible for him to put his trust in God? Look down in verse 4. It says, in God whose word I praise. Whose word I praise. What David believed was that every single promise from God to God's people was his promise to claim. Every single promise in the Bible towards God's children is your promise to claim. We overcome the sting of worry when we realize that when we realize that God's promises to his people in the Bible are your promises too. They're not just for the religious, the spiritually elite. Every single promise that you read in the Bible about God's victory, about the gospel and about how we are no longer separated but we're brought so close. And about the comfort, the comfort of God, that God loves us so much that he gave his only son, that he would pour out by his spirit comfort into your life is not promises just for everybody else, but they are promises to you in the midst of your distress. That is the truth of the Bible. So therefore, worry becomes a debilitating problem in our lives when we forget what God's promises are to his children. Worry becomes a problem when we start to think that I'm the only one who is in ultimate control. I am the one who needs to save myself. If this relationship or this event or this job doesn't work out, then everything is meaningless. Those are the anti to God's promises. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises. There is a difference between getting everything we want and getting everything that God wants for us. Josh McDowell said, Knowing that God is faithful, it really helps me not to be captivated by my worry. You see the difference? There is a worry that happens for the Christian that is godly, but it is very, very different to be captivated by worry. Worship, trusting in God, trusting in God, what God says about himself, and trusting in God's promises for your life will silence the sting of worry. But then we need to ask, what are these promises? What are God's promises to his children? Well, there are many promises to God's children, but there are a few that are particularly intimately close to David in this experience that he has. And here is the first of those promises. Flesh does not have the final victory. Look down in verse 4. It says, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Right? In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This is the same refrain. If you would look down in verse 11, you will see the same refrain made by David again. And throughout, um, throughout this psalm, you'll see that God or the Lord is mentioned 10 times and man is, uh, or humanity is mentioned three times. And we know that in the Bible, they didn't have exclamation points and they didn't have emojis so that you knew exactly what they were trying to say. 
They use repetition to make a point. The point that he's making is that flesh is powerless over God. God has complete authority and complete power over the circumstances of our lives. David's point is that the power of man is no match for the power of God. So to lean on God is to silence the sting of our circumstances and thereby silence the sting of our worry. David had this robust understanding of victory, right? This robust understanding of victory. That there are times in David's life where he knew that the victory would be immediate, that it would be physical, and that it would be before his very eyes. But to understand this psalm is to actually understand the whole counsel of the Bible and to understand all of David's psalms. And David was not blind to the reality that death was coming for him and that would not be a moment of victory, but it would be a moment of real pain. And that sometimes, some victories in our life, we're going to see on this side of eternity, but some victories are actually going to make their way to the other side of eternity. David wrote in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. And he writes this, My flesh and my heart may fail. David knew that his life would not pass on for eternity. That there was coming a moment in his life because of the fall that we read about in Genesis that death was coming to every single person and that his flesh was going to fail and that his heart was going to fail and it is coming for all of us. But he writes, Even though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There are times where flesh feels like it's getting its victory. But we know that God will make his victory known to us in this lifetime or known to us in the next. David knew that distress could not be avoided, but a life with God means that fleshly circumstances do not change my identity, nor can they overcome a God who will stand in victory across all circumstances, even when we don't know how his victory will come. There are times, friends, when life will look like you're not walking in victory, but we need to believe by faith that we are. That Romans 8.28 says that God is working that all things, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And what Christians would really, really like to add on to the end is that and God is working out all things together for the good of those who love him, and God will explain it all to me along the way. That's definitely how I've felt. That a season has come in my life, and, um, and, and that season has not been enjoyable for whatever reason, and I don't understand why it came about, and I'm waiting for God to explain himself to me. But he doesn't promise that. We need to lean on the good and right and perfect promises of God. That we will experience victory in this lifetime or the next. But a fair question might be, well, if I go through life and that I never never know how God is being good to me and all I experience is pain and turmoil and, and unrest, how do I know that God really has goodness set aside for me? Well, that's revealed in promise number two. The second promise of God is the promise of God's justice. Look down in verse five. It says, 
All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. Uh, David's not having a very good time, if you haven't noticed. Verse 7, For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. So I need to bring you back to remember that this is not just David's uh, journal diary entry, but it is a song written for the people of God. It is a song written for the people of Israel. The Israelites would sing this song. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. And this, this line has this picture in mind. It has this picture where one day, all of God's people, all of God's people will no longer be surrounded by enemies, but we will all be surrounded by family. There is coming a day where we'll be surrounded by family and it will be a perfect union, a perfect union with Christ and a perfect union with his church where enemies will no longer be able to push us down and Christians know that this is made possible because of the great, unbelievably good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came and lived and died and lived again so that I may live and die and live again. That there is a punishment that I should have paid because of the sin that I've committed, the offence that I've committed towards God. But because Jesus took on that punishment for me, there is a day coming where I will experience a perfect relationship with God and the church will experience a perfect relationship with God. It should do something to your worry. It should affect your worry to know the greatest thing that we should fear, eternal separation from God, that is the greatest fear that we should have, has been obliterated because of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. There will be no longer any separation. That should fill you with bravery and confidence in life. That things, some things should not worry you at all because of the bravery and confidence that you have, that the greatest fear that you could have has been obliterated because of the good news of the gospel. I would choose skydiving over bungee jumping. Who would choose skydiving? Who would choose bungee jumping? See, the reason why you're the minority, right? The reason why you're the minority is because you can see the ground. I'm convinced that the reason why I would never, ever go bungee jumping is because the ground is too close when you, when you go bungee jumping. That when you stand in a plane and you look, you look down at the ground, it just feels too far away, right? There's a girl in our church, uh, our office administrator, Lachey, who went to New Zealand and she bungee jumped twice, right? She did it once and then she wanted to do it again to experience the Spartan kick, right? The Spartan kick, you ask, is when you stand on the edge of a ledge and the person who owns this, the person you pay money to, kicks you in the middle of the chest so that you can be thrown off the ground in a different experience, right? You pay the money for this, Vanith. You pay the money. This whole like, living life on the edge through doing stuff like that, it's actually super cool because it's, it's the idea that the greatest fear, if you can accomplish the greatest fear in life, then everything else that's scary will no longer be scary anymore. And it is true that in our relationship with God, when our greatest fear is taken away, that we are filled with a boldness and confidence. But the gospel actually does more than that. It fills us with hope. 
It fills us with hope for the future. That there is coming a day when the Bible says that Jesus will wipe every tear from our eye. That there is coming a day where death, every single person that has died that confesses Jesus as Lord will be reunited in Christ's church. That's why the passage that in Romans 8, 31 to 39 was so significant to the church in Rome is because Christians were being killed and they needed hope, right? They needed hope. They needed to be reassured that everything that happened was happening around them wasn't the final word in the story. So Paul writes to them and Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Or you might say we are super conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life will be able to separate us. Nothing in this world and nothing in the world to come will be able to rip us away from God. There is coming a day where death will come to us, but the great hope of the gospel is that our eternity is secure. And I do pray for myself that if, if I have, the, the, uh, by the gift of God's grace, the opportunity to grow old, and um, I get to that place where um, I know that death is coming, that I will be like those giants who walk before me who have a very realistic picture of, of, of crossing over to the other side and passing away. That is a reality for them. But they're also full of joy. You know those Christians that you meet that you know that they're not far away from death, but they've got this joy about meeting Jesus? It's because they have this hope in the gospel that it, this life is not all that it is. Or not all that there is. So your, war, your work might fall over. Your partner might leave you. You might have no one around that loves you. You might be bearing all this weight, but you have this great hope that this life is not all that there is. We should also ask the question then, if God has made a way for us that there is hope for the future, how can I be sure that God cares about my pain in this moment? Does this moment matter to God or is it all just about waiting for this future glory? Well, this brings us to our third promise, that silence is the sting of worry. You matter to God. The promise that you matter to God because that's what the Bible says. There is a scene in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus comes to the entrance of Jerusalem and he's walked this um, Jerusalem road to get to the gates of Jerusalem and he looks upon the people in Jerusalem, a people that are rebellious, a people that are not repentant, a people that have not accepted the very miracles of Jesus and he weeps. Weeping is not shedding a tear. Weeping means he cried his eyes out. Because he had such a heart for people. Luke recalls, recalls these parables of um, the lost sheep and the lost son and the lost coin. And because they're using this imagery to remind us that when even one person turns to the Lord, he is overjoyed. When even one person comes into relationship with God, the Bible says that heaven is in a roar, Right? This week, I had an opportunity to sit down with someone and lead them to the Lord. And it was so exciting to sit in the room with them when they repented for the first time, declared Jesus is Lord, and know by faith that the Bible says that in heaven there was a great celebration. Because God loves you. 
God loves you, friends, because the Bible says that he does. Look down in verse 8. Look how David describes the loving care his God has for him. He writes, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? How's the imagery? Put my tears in your bottle. I thought it was a bold decision when Pastor Ollie decided to purchase bubble soccer for his youth ministry. I don't know if any of you guys have had an opportunity to play bubble soccer before. I don't even know if you know what bubble soccer is, but if you just put this next picture up, that's bubble soccer, right? The very first um, camp that I ever went to in, a, in young adults' um, ministry, we got bubble soccer. And because I was a new kid on the block and I was trying to prove that I was of value, um, I decided to jump in one of these things. And um, they blow these things up and there was six on one side and there was six on the other side. And the, this guy comes along and he looks really official, right? He looks like he knows exactly what his job is. He, he's giving out all the great instructions. He's even got the bright colored polo shirt on so you know you can trust him. And he tells me that to build up confidence in you, so you've got confidence what we're doing, what we're going to do is line up six on one side and we're going to line up six on the other side. And then what I want you to do is run at each other and just before you get to each other, jump. And so I want to back myself in because I was uh, the new guy on the block. And so we ran at each other and just before um, we got to each other, I jumped and hit the other person because I was told this would reassure me that it didn't hurt. What happened was that I experienced a world of hurt. Because as you can see, the bubble doesn't cover all of you. I should have been able to see that. I get in this bubble sock and I hit this other bubble and I fly back and I land straight on my knees. I'm not young anymore. I'm old and my body hurts all the time. And I did it all because the official looking dude, the guy that's supposed to care for me, the guy that's supposed to look out for me, told me to run at something else. And I do wonder if, for you, you've seen God as this person who's carelessly bouncing you from one host of injuries to another. That he's just telling you to run from one bad situation to the next bad situation for his good pleasure. Because he's inexperienced, because he doesn't know what he's doing, because he's been trained poorly. Psalms is the great testimony that God has tender love and care for his children. God is with, not without knowledge. God is not without strength. God is not without sovereignty. God has tender loving care for his children. The imagery that David uses here of God collecting up the tears of his children, his imagery tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us that none of your tears are forgotten. Luke 12 verse 7 says, Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than sparrows. Worry loses its sting when you realize that you are not a meaningless casualty in this world. You are not just another number. When you submit an assignment in university, you have to delete any reflection of you being a real person, right? No names on university assignments. You quickly just become a number. You need to be just a number so that people in authority can have no personal connection with you. 
This, the exact opposite is true of the children of God. He is so deeply aware and intimate and close to his children. He has a deep, intimate care. But not only is he aware of your pain, he is close to you in the midst of your pain. See, if you're a parent that's ever been to a playground with kids playing or you've been a, ki a kid at a playground playing where kids are nearby, this really, really strange, things happen, strange thing happens when a kid hurts himself and falls over, right? Kid hits something, hurts himself, falls over, starts crying. No one moves. No one runs to the little child. Everyone, and you know this happens, everyone goes, whose responsibility is that? Everyone, just because everyone's so scared, right? Whose responsibility is that? Who's going to take care of that child? Whose child is that? David has come to know that God is so close, so close that he is not far, so close that he is wiping, collecting the tears of his children. That is the imagery that is being used. That God is so close that he's literally able to scrape the tears off your cheek. All through Scripture, God is reminding you, you are my child, you are my child. Second Corinthians says this, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We matter to God, not in the way where we can leverage this relationship to manipulate God to do the stuff that we want, but God deeply loves his children. You might feel lost in life, God has not abandoned you. You might feel overwhelmed, God is not disinterested in you. You might feel like you're stuck in a cycle of worry. God wants you to know that the promises that God has made to his children are your promises too. Amen? Amen. Psalm 56 ends in this way. In verse 12, look down in your Bibles. It says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will, I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. These vows and offerings that David promises to make aren't in payment for victory, but they're in anticipation of victory. Because David knows that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises. That's what it's like to walk before God in the light of life. It is to believe by faith in the midst of your circumstances that God's promises to his children are your promises too. Uh, this week, I was reminded by my wife about the last time that we went up Mount Lofty. Um, Mount Lofty, if, if you've ever gone up Mount Lofty, your mouth just filled with lactic acid, as I said that, right? It's about 20 minutes from here. It's 3.9 kilometers up. It's beautiful when you get to the end if you get a chance to go. Super beautiful but it is a hard slog to get to the top. And I remember the last time I went up there, uh, when, you, when you go up, you have this really strange experience at the start, if you remember, the start's pretty easy, right? The start's easy. And you get full of all this confidence going up the hill that you think you can run. And then you get to like that first corner and then it turns steep and then it turns really steep. And you see all the people that were confidently walking around you are now just like casualties laying on the side. Literally, the last time I went up there with my wife, ambulance was coming back down. There were like three ambulance officers, not an actual ambulance, right? Three ambulance officers were coming back down. It seems to take casualties along the way. You see people that started off running, clutching at their heart. You, people, you see people slumped over saying, I will not go another step. 
And the mountain does this weird thing in the last kilometre where you only see 100 metres ahead of you, and then you, so you commit to it, and you turn a corner, and there's another 100 metres. For some of you, I know that you started off walking in your relationship with God where everything was easy. It was super exciting, it was fun and enjoyable, and you thought you could start running, and then you turned a corner, and things for you might have changed. And now your life is full of worry and concern, and it's not the kind of concern where you're believing, believing God's promises for, but it's the kind of concern that is consuming you and you're forgetting God's promises. Well, I believe that Psalm 56 was written to remind us that God has not left us, but God is on the mountain there with us. That in the midst of your worry, the way that you experience victory through worry is remembering that God's promises are for you too, and that God is close to you. Psalm 103 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Let me pray for you. God, I would love for every person in this room just to know your tender care tonight. It is true that in my life there have been many times where I've doubted your provision, doubted your promises, doubted your plan. And I just want to pray for those people here tonight that feel distant from you, that feel like they're consumed by worry. I just pray right now that you would remind them of your faithful promises to your children, that we do live in victory this side of eternity or the next, that the gospel has brought us into right relationship with you and that you are the great comforter. God, I just want to pray now for those people here tonight that feel, hard, feel far from you. I just pray, God, that by your spirit you would minister to them tonight. Remind us that we are conquerors because of what you have done. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. And as we worship now, don't let this moment slip by. Why don't you just take this moment to take all of your concerns, your distress, godly and ungodly, to God and ask him, that by His Spirit, He would remind you that He is the great comforter.